Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples magazine. You can find out more by visiting lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Visiting Mark about current world affairs, including things that are happening in Iran, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, China, Hong Kong, and more. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, and he's a professor, I should say president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll also visit with Jim McTigg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mystery thrillers, uh, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is March the 1st, and on this day in 1692, in Salem Village in Massachusetts Bay Colony, Sarah Good. Sarah Osborne and Tichbla, an enslaved woman from the Barbados, were charged with the illegal practice of witchcraft. Later that day, Tichbla, uh, possibly under the coercion, under coercion, confessed to a crime encouraging the authorities to seek out more Salem witches. Trouble in the small Puritan community began the month before when a nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris and eleven-year-old Abigail Williams, the daughter and niece, respectively, of Reverend Samuel Paris, began experiencing fits and other mysterious maladies. A doctor concluded that the children were suffering from the effects of witchcraft. The young girls corroborated the doctor's diagnosis. With encouragement from a number of adults in the community, the girls, who were soon joined by other afflicted Salem residents, accused a widening circle of local residents of witchcraft, mostly middle-aged women, but also several men and even four-year-old child. During the next four months, the afflicted area residents incriminated more than 150 women and men from Salem, and in June 1692, the Special Court of Oyer, which, stands, which means to hear, and Terminer to decide, convened in Salem under Chief Justice William Salton to judge the accused. The first to be tried was Bridget uh, Bishop of Salem, who was found guilty and executed by hanging on June the 10th. Thirteen more women and four men were from all stations of life, followed her to the gallows, and one man, Giles Corey, was executed by crushing. Most of these tried were condemned on the basis of their witnesses' behavior during the actual proceedings, characterized by fits and hallucinations that were argued to be caused by the defendants on trial. In October 1692, Governor William Phipps of Massachusetts ordered the Court of Oyer and Terminer dissolved and replaced with the Superior Court of Judicature, uh, which forbade the type of sensational testimony allowed in earlier trials. Execution ceased, and the Superior Court eventually released all those waiting trial and pardoned those sentenced to death. The Salem witch trials, which resulted in the executions of 19 innocent women and men, had effectively ended. But you can see how actually these types of beliefs can gain momentum and what can actually happen. But a mob has no conscience. and This is the result. Is history repeating itself right now? We have a cancer, a cancel culture going on. It certainly has good footing, just as good footing as it had in 1692. Do you miss me yet? Yeah, that's how the President Trump how he began his keynote speech at CPAC yesterday. We watched it. It was really fun to see. The enthusiasm was palpable. Everybody was excited to hear the president. It was standing room only. Putting to rest talk of a third party to break off from the GOP, former President Donald Trump said there would be only the Republican Party united all the way. He said, I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight to be right by your side. Trump said Sunday at the headliner at the American Conservative Union Conference on Sunday in Orlando. We'll do what we've done from the very beginning which is to win, he said. By the way, our own Byron Donalds is there on a panel as well, gaining traction 
in the Democrat in the Republican Party as well. We're not uh, starting new parties, you know. They've kept saying we're going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I'm not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news, said President Trump. Trump vowed at CPAC the party will fight to defeat radical Democrats in future elections. Brave Republicans in this room will be at the heart of the effort to oppose the radical Democrats, the fake news media, their toxic cancel culture, something that are that are to our news to our ears, cancel culture, he said early in his speech. No, that would be brilliant. Let's start a new party. Let's divide our own votes so you can never win. No, we're not interested in that, he said. The speech to CPAC was Trump's first public appearance since he left office 39 days ago. Since then, he's kept an uncharacteristically low profile, of course, helped by the fact that he was canceled by uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook. In email uh, statements and a handful of interviews to friendly outlets, he blasted Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, eulogized talk show host Rush Limbaugh, and by the way, what a great tribute there was at CPAC yesterday, and made refreshing allegations of election fraud all while avoiding questions about his future in the party. His remarks ratified the consensus of the conference that there is not a conservative movement wallowing in its loss to Democrat Joe Biden as much as it a government-in-waiting, counting down three years and 11 months for Trump to make America great again. In a straw poll, 97% of attendees approved of, the, of his leadership of the party. That's right, 97%. I don't think there's ever been a vote that. 70% want him to run again, and 55% said he was their preferred candidate in 2024. The other top contenders, of course, were uh, Ron DeSantis from Florida and uh, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and Donald Trump Jr. actually made the, the count as well. Trump's rousing reception at the most important conservative gathering on the calendar highlights just how much Trump has transformed the movement in just five years. On Sunday, he was even closer. He was the closer of a three-day festival of, I should say, the closer of a three-day festival of Trump-favored conservatism that bore his undeniable imprint. The conference included at least seven panels, including discussing Trump's claims of a stolen election in 2020. Major figures from the Trump cabinet, at least those still loyal to the president, were giving Speaking slots, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was there, Trade Representative Robert Leitzinger, Acting Director of National Intelligence Rick Grinnell, who's probably going to be the candidate for governor in California, and Budget Director Rich Vogt. Prominent conservatives who have left Trump's orbit were nowhere to be found, including McConnell, his wife and former Trump Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney, even Trump's old running mate, former Vice President Mike Pence, declined the invitation to the event. So if you think that country club Republicans think they're going to rid themselves of Donald Trump, think again. His policies just weeks into his post-presidency, they're more strong than ever. The Conservative Political Action Conference, the bellwether event of American conservatives, began and ended with an unmistakable message in Trump, we trust, or at least in Trump's policies, we trust. Speaker after speaker, line after speech line, the 45th president held over the Republican Party was solidified, was solidified this weekend. Strong borders, personal liberty, prosperity, law and order, the rejection of liberal wokeisms in, in life, school, public policy, and culture were the clearing call. Republican Party unifying around the president's doctrine and its antidote for defeating the Democrats in 22 and 2024. He really took after the first uh, term, I should say the first month of Biden's presidency, just citing in every case the things that he's doing to make America not great again, but make America less great, frankly. Voters are saying overwhelmingly they agree with President Trump with what he did in office, and according to Ronald McDaniel, what it means for the next two elections is that Biden and congressional Democrats must once again uh, face against the policies that delivered the White House to Trump in 2016, if not Trump himself. By the way, Josh Hawley did a great job. He gave a great speech offering a glimpse of what Democrats can expect in the next two elections 
we believe in borders because we believe in citizenship, he said, and we believe in citizenship because we believe in America. It was a great conference. Uh, Linda and I watched most of it, uh, and uh, it was fun to watch, a lot of excitement right there in Orlando, Florida. Just a great conference indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Look forward to hear what he has to say. Uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks in Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Lifeinnaples.net is the website. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman, as I mentioned before the break. He's the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. He's also the author of several books, mainly about past presidents. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So let's, we've, as we have in the past, we start off the show on Mondays by talking about current world events, and I suppose a good place to start is what's happening in Myanmar. Right, okay, so in terms of Myanmar, um, look, the army has decided they're going to kill their people. And so they started, and people will not back down, so they started firing mm. uh, live ammunition, killing protesters. Um, you know, that's always the problem. You know, that, that's always the question. If a government is willing to kill its own people, it's hard for a revolt to succeed. And unless the army turns on its generals, which doesn't seem likely since this, you know, the the dictatorship is a dictatorship of the army. So it's much more difficult than when you have just a general dictator who has the support of the army. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to see. It doesn't look really good. Yeah. Um, the United States is, of course, sanctioning all the new leaders of Myanmar, uh, as we should. Um, 
But um, listen, it's another step backwards in terms of democracy yeah. we've seen over the last few years. Truly tragic. And my guess is that the Army probably is pretty well taken care of in terms of its financial and in its situation, most people are very poor, extremely poor in Myanmar, so the choices of the soldiers are pretty much to turn on your people or to uh, be one of them to get shot yourself. Right, absolutely. Yeah. And so far they've turned on their people. The people are not backing down yet, but, you know, it, it's always the problem. How, lo how long are you willing to, how many people are willing to give up their lives if they don't think it's going to work? Yeah. It's amazing to me, though. I mean, when just moving to Hong Kong, the same thing is going on right now. People are resisting. Amazing, young people are standing up for liberty and at the risk of their own lives. Yes, they are, but they're being arrested. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they pass these new security laws in Hong Kong that basically make any opposition to the government a a security violation. A security violation can be thrown in jail for ten years, and that's what's happening in Hong Kong. The Chinese are cracking down, eliminating whatever whatever is left of the liberties that existed in Hong Kong are pretty much all gone at this point. Uh, now, they have economic liberties. Again, this, is, you know, this again goes down to what most of China is all about. This is not a communist country. It's a dictatorship of, uh, of, a, of a party. And this time they call themselves the Communist Party, but there's nothing between them and communism whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, so. But is partisan part of this a lie, though? I mean, does, what is the bedrock of Chinese of its uh, economy. I mean, the, the companies are propped up. In other words, I don't think it's true free markets at all. Uh, That's not true. To I mean, look, yes, there's some companies that are propped up, and there's some companies, I'm sure, defense companies. But look at all the companies, American companies, that have done manufacturing. In China, almost all the electronics in the world is produced there. Some have moved out of China, but think of the iPhones, the Macs, all of those sort of things. And the competing companies have all been manufacturing in China. And it's not so much, people don't understand the fact, it's not that labor is so cheap there. The labor is not that cheap anymore in China. Right. But it's the fact that all of the secondary industries that provide all the parts and everything else are often all there and available. You know, there's one city in China that's, I forgot the name of it, but it's called, the, it's, its nickname is the Sock City. Because all they do is produce socks there. And there are millions and millions of pairs of socks produced every day there, and they provide the whole world with socks. So these are free enterprises and not government enterprises. Uh, but because there's this tight web of manufacturers and suppliers and everything else in some of these places, they've had this tremendous competitive advantage. Yeah. And that's why their economy has done so well. But now their economy also has a significant domestic market as well. It's not only exports. And um, so they're a very competitive economy on, on all levels. Yes, there is some government intervention, like I said before, in the defense firms in those areas. But by and large, um, these are free market companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mark, help me. You know, I, a couple of years ago, I recall reading that uh, Chinese citizens would get on a train uh, and go to a province where perhaps there'd be 250,000, uh, 300,000 employees all in one factory. They would spend all but about 10 days a year at the factory, living in dorms, and then go back for 10 days to be with their families. I mean, is that the same kind of thing going on still? To some extent. I mean, not to the extent that it was previously. A lot of these people have moved to permanent housing and don't live in the dorms. But you know, some of the big companies have these dormitories for their workers. Um, you know, uh, Foxconn, for instance, is well known for that. That's the company that Apple uses to produce a lot of its products. And they have these huge dormitories for their workers to live in. Um, not bad conditions. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, no. it's not it's not slave labor or anything like that. It's just you know, dormitory type situation. I think two people to a room or whatever it might be, uh, to a small apartment. Um, but um, yes, and they they all come from the rural provinces and they go back uh, for Chinese New Year every year. As one of the big concerns when Corona broke out at the beginning, it was this time of the New Year's when half the country was traveling back to that town. And that's what they put to a stop. No. But, uh, look, it's it's a mixed economy, some very advanced areas, a lot of stuff they've stolen from the United States and other parts of the world in terms of technology. And some of it's indigenously produced. Yeah. Um, but um, speaking but of the true... Hmm? Uh, speaking of the broader issues, though, I mean, China's one-child policy for years, I wonder... I wonder how, what kind of havoc that's playing right now with economic growth and with the, the size of the 
Well, it's a real problem, though. They gave up on the one-child program policy about five years ago, but there is a decrease in the number of Chinese at the moment. They're having less and less people reaching the workforce, which is a problem for them. I mean, we all grew up on the idea that the Chinese were, you know, billions and they were going to keep on growing, but the one Chinese, one child worked in the sense it stopped Chinese population growth, but too much so. Mm-hmm. And so we do not have that they're slowly developing an elderly population, relatively speaking. And as we know, generally speaking, for growth in the world, a population, a youth population is good. Now, the ways of overcoming it, we've seen Japan, which we thought was going to become a total uh, economic a basket case because of this population decreases, has managed using a lot, a lot more robots and other methods to overcome some of their problem of the fact that they have a very aging population as well. I, I understand uh, that demographics a, are very important. Yeah, it's why immigration was America's secret weapon all these years. Yeah, immigration brought more and more people into the United States, and usually young, younger people. And if we look back at American history, immigrants always have more children than third and fourth generation Americans. Absolutely. And as a result, American population uh, until very recently has been growing. Now it's with the immigration cutback in the last couple of years that's beginning to be in danger at the moment. So it's yeah. one of those things to keep in mind. Um, long-term America has grown economically because of immigration over, you know, over... Yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me of the country in, in uh, Europe that's basically put policies in place that pays its citizens to multiply, to have kids to... Uh, uh, in other words, it's it's financially beneficial. And I believe it was Hungary. They're all, yeah. they all trying to do it. Yeah, uh, quite a, Poland did, excuse me. Poland clearly has... They're all trying to do it. It's really a problem. I mean, quite frankly, Israel has had it for years where um, basically for every child you got a certain amount of money every month. But, um, you know, it's people don't make the, most of these decisions based on uh, a number of children, you know, on the money issue. I mean, money is part of the question, but as we know, as educational levels grow, people tend to aim at two, maybe three kids per family and never more than that because we feel in a Western society that um, if we're not immigrants, that in order to give our children enough attention, you know, too many children, it's very difficult to give the attention we think they deserve. And so as educational levels grow, the number of children people have decreases. That's even more so in Europe than in the United States. But the United States as well can do a pretty clear chart except for certain ethnic groups we will see the higher the education, the lower number of children people have. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I have a, a good friend. He's actually a musician. His work dried up, of course, during the pandemic, so he took up photography. He's raised 10 children, and he's just, they have a very happy family. It's just amazing to me what they've accomplished, and uh, pretty much outside the norm of how people think about uh, their families here in the United States. Mark, we have so much more to talk about here. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. 
Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of 1st Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. They have a number of great programs, among them uh, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher, again, of a terrific multimedia website, HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. Uh, let's pick up with what's happening in Iran. Kind of a complex situation right now, but uh, we've attacked their troops in Syria as a quote-unquote kind of measured response to uh, what they did uh, in attacking in Iraq. What are your thoughts? Right. It is a very complicated, complex situation at the moment. Um, you know, we did attack their troops in, in, or their militias in Syria, uh, bringing about deaths. It was a pretty vigorous response, um, probably a more vigorous response than we've seen in the last couple of years. On the other hand, we have the Hutus who are in Yemen who are being supported by the Iranians who fired missiles on Riyadh last night, and on top of which we've had um, an attack on an Israeli, not flagged ship, but owned by an Israeli ship in the Gulf of um, Oman. Um, they're claiming it wasn't, they didn't do it, but everyone else says it was probably the Iranians. And then to throw it all in the whole bucket, the Iranians have refused the proposal to sit down with the United States and the Europeans to discuss um, renewing the JCOPA um, nuclear arms agreement. Um, so an awful lot going on, a lot of complex situation here yeah. with a lot of moving parts, um, and oh, on top of which I think um, Israel attacked Iranian forces in Syria last night as a retaliation for the attack on the ship, just to throw a little more into it. Uh, so it's really gotten to a very complicated situation. Um, it's you know, it's hard to know how this this winds up. You know, the goal is to stop, guess, and stop the nuclear program. Mm -hmm. uh, they want a price to be paid for doing that. It's not clear how it's going to go. Um, the United States has been successful now in reengaging the Europeans to work together with the United States to try to pressure Iran. Will it be enough? I don't know. So, did I do I understand correctly that basically our starting point of negotiation with the Iranians was basically we're going to lift sanctions against the, the Iranians before we even get any concessions on their part? No, that is not our opening statement. Our opening statement, our, our position is they have to return to compliance with the agreement before we lift sanctions, and they want that's their opening statement. Uh -huh. They want us to lift statement, lift sanctions, and then they'll return to the agreement. That's the that that is the problem at the moment. Uh, President Biden has made it clear that that they have to return to the agreements before the United States lifts the sanctions, and the Iranians are going the other way and saying since we we kept the agreement, it was the Americans who walked away from the agreement. Um, they better, they have to go back into the agreement before we go back into the agreement. Okay, so thanks for clarifying. So then, uh, of course, uh, they made attacks on our uh, troops in, or I should say, on our. I guess they were uh, uh, contractors. In Iraq, why did we make an attack on their troops or "quote unquote" associates in uh, in Syria? Two reasons: we didn't want to attack in in Iraq itself because we are still aligned with the Iraqi government to some extent. So we don't want to embarrass the Iraqi government. Our mm -hmm. troops are in Iraq, mm -hmm. still at the pleasure of the Iraqi government. So we, Syria, on the other hand, is sort of no man's land, mm -hmm. and so it's a much more convenient venue to attack Iranian. Militias, because who's going to complain? Assad's going to complain. Do we care if Assad complains or not? Um, so it was, a, it was a good choice. 
And we pretty much attacked them in some of the similar areas that Israel has been attacking them over the last uh, few months. Um, Iranian troops that have been stationed, or Iranian militias that have been stationed in Syria. I mean, I think it was a good move. I mean, it showed the fact that uh, the Biden administration was not going to be pushed around relating to the Iranian um, policy. Also, a differential from the Obama policy, which basically said, let's not do anything that might upset the chances of an agreement. And the Biden is basically saying, we want that agreement, but we're not going to give them a, a free pass on other things in the pursuit of that agreement. Yeah, doesn't this open up the unintended consequences of getting Syria back involved in these uh, skirmishes? I don't know what Syria... I mean, Syria has no nothing to get involved with. I mean, it's the Russians we have to be worried about because mm. they're in Syria as well, although we did tell the Russians in advance we were doing this. I mean, you know, the Syrian army doesn't barely exist. The only reason he's still in power is the power of the Russian army. Mm. So let's let's move so, to uh, what's happening in Russia because uh, we, we haven't heard much about this lately. But the uh, the hack that occurred a couple of months ago, I guess yeah, it was the winds attack. Yes, it, we haven't heard much because we're still trying to figure it out. It was by far the largest hack in history. Um, there was a report yesterday that they estimated that two thousand people on their side were working on it. On top of which. Uh, they basically got into the system and then waited for four months to make sure that they weren't detected before starting to spread out over the over all the systems. Wow, it's a very, very, very big problem. Wow. Um, every cybersecurity expert I've spoken to basically says we have no control over you know where they are and what they, what doors they've gotten into, and without throwing out our whole computer system everywhere and starting from scratch, there's no easy solution. That is, so well, so maybe really, that's... Really, it was a very brilliant attack, Yeah. Uh, but the fact that it wasn't detected for so long is very, very problematic because it allowed them to go everywhere. My understanding is that the State Department, as an example, or Department of Defense, has a pretty weak uh, uh, computer system anyhow. Wouldn't it make sense perhaps just to start over anyhow? Well, it's not so simple. You, you, know, you talk about starting over. Things can be embedded on every single computer. Mm-hmm. We're not even talking about the idea of the networks. We're talking about literally they've had access to every single computer in the government service everywhere. Wow. Not to mention a good percentage of the computers in, in private service as well. Um, so it's we have no idea of what sort of malware they could have placed, what sort of spyware they could have placed on all of these different different systems or or what they have in place, which is just sitting there with an open door. Mm-hmm. So the fact is they you can't detect what isn't there, but it's much harder to detect the fact that the door is open, so to speak. Gotcha. Um, so, it's, it's, it's a really, it was a brilliant attack on the sense from a tactical standpoint, um, and it's left it, left us wide open hmm. uh, for, you know, if we do a counterattack, and then using the, their open doors to do tremendous havoc and danger. In other words, they have so access to every, we, we have no, there's no limit to what they have access to in terms of our government computer system. No, including private systems. In other words, this was not only government, this was this was done both to the government and and to the private sector. Ah, amazing. And so it's, it's you know, again, they may, may be less than we think, but by and large, every expert says there is no reason to think they couldn't have gotten to almost every every single computer in everyone's system wow. at this point, except maybe Macintoshes. Um, but all the PCs and everything else looks like they're all totally vulnerable to the, the, the attack that was used. It's an amazing report. So, Mark, unless you're going to throw out all the PCs and the government and all, buy all Macs, I don't think Apple can make enough quick enough, so that's not, yeah, not an option. Uh, so interesting. I failed to point out that you're in Tel Aviv right now and have been for months we didn't talk about the coronavirus. We've seen a tremendous decline nationally, but perhaps we can hold that conversation uh, off till next week, Mark. Yes, but the way it's put the way, the air- airport here is still closed, so even if I wanted to get back to the United States, I can't. <laughs> okay. So. Well, you're in a good place anyhow. So, Mark, I just genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining Have us. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. Y- Bye-bye. You as well. Thank you. And, Mark, by the way, uh, HistoryCentral.com, great website. Check it out. Certainly worth uh, visiting. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Larry... Uh, Reed, he is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. 
Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulubee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. I hope you'll check it out. ChoiceSocial.us is the website. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are a private organization devoted to educating and inspiring young people at high school and college age in ideas of liberty, free markets, private enterprise, and personal character. And we do that through the uh, website, which is fee.org. Lots of online videos and uh, commentary content, as well as in-person uh, all over the country and sometimes abroad. Yeah, absolutely. Great organization. If there's a young person in your life, high school or college age, make sure they get exposed to the ideas at fee, F-E-E, uh, dot org. Larry, your latest column I enjoyed so much. Louis Armstrong broke barriers with music, optimism, and sh- the sheer force of his personality. Maybe you can tell us about it. Armstrong was one of the greatest entertainers of the 20th century, and I can hardly uh, talk about him without a smile on my face because he always had one on his, and one of the biggest, toothiest uh, smiles uh, I've ever seen on anybody. But he was born in New Orleans in 1901, and he had a rough upbringing in a tough town at that time. Time. Uh, in fact, he spent uh, nearly two years at a reform school, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you don't hear that phrase much anymore, but we had reform schools back then for troubled youngsters. Uh, but what he did really wasn't all super serious in, in the sense that he just borrowed his father's revolver uh, on New Year's Eve and just went out on the town with friends and fired six shots up in the air, not intending to harm anybody, but it was enough to get him arrested. (laughs) And he was age 11 at that time. And then uh, he was remanded to a reform school where he immediately joined the band. He had some musical talent that uh, he had shown in in the years prior, but it was at the reform school where he brunette, uh, which later led, of course, to the trombone and the trumpet, uh, for which we know him best. And that was the start of a great, uh, phenomenal career. But most people don't know that uh, one of the greatest entertainers of the 20th century got his start in a reform school. <laughs> yeah, no, well, in fact, uh, I'll share with you a, 
uh, story. Jason Korn is an attorney here in town, and he tells the story of his great-great-grandfather. His, na- his uh, family name at the time was Karnofsky. Yes. And, uh, they took in this uh, child uh, uh, who was the uh, son of a prostitute in New Orleans, uh, basically, uh, they sold ice and coal, and so they had uh, uh, kind of a little instrument that he would go out and blow, and, and that would announce to people that the ice and coal man was here. And uh, so Louis enjoyed that so much, apparently, that he asked for uh, to get a trumpet, and they gave him an advance on his allowance. And uh, so he ended up getting a trumpet, and that was the beginning of his career. And my understanding, that, of course, the Karnowskis were Jewish, and apparently, as I understand it, uh, Louis Armstrong wore the star of David around his neck until the day he died. That's correct. Uh, the Karnowskis were extremely kind to him. He deeply appreciated it uh, all of his uh, life. And uh, what an incredible life it was. And so many people today can still remember uh, you know, a number of his famous tunes from Hello, Dolly, to uh, What a Wonderful World, to Ain't Misbehavin'. I mean, you go down the list, Yeah. Uh, there's just one song after another we still have in our heads, don't we? We certainly do. Hey, do you mind? You you played What a Wonderful World. You included it on uh, this. and it, it You cannot listen, help but listen to this and smile, especially if you have the visual of seeing this. I'd just like to play a few bars. Do you mind? Okay. Here we go. I see trees of green I see them blue For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue Clouds of white Bright blessed days Dark sacred nights And I think to myself What a wonderful world You know, that just uh, just makes me smile, uh, Larry, to hear that song. Yes. And especially if you see the visual there, his wonderful, wonderful smile. He just exudes, I think, love, not only for his passion around the music, but also the words surrounding it as well. He sure did in everything that he did. And uh, that's a big reason why he's such a beloved entertainer to this day, almost 50 years since he passed away in 1971. Yeah, indeed, it, it, it did. What an impression he left to his last co- his last album, as I recall, was called Ambassador Satch, and he truly was an ambassador around the world. His music was accepted everywhere in the world, even when there were barriers uh, to negotiations and to diplomacy. He was truly an ambassador, international ambassador for music, the international uh, language too. Yes. He sure was, and another uh, great figure from the jazz world, Duke Ellington, uh, when Louis Armstrong died, Ellington said about uh, Armstrong, he was born poor, mm-hmm. died rich, and never hurt anyone along the way. And uh, that's so true, but uh, Armstrong was so much more, uh, in fact. He not only never hurt anybody, he made so many millions around the world happy and uh, made them smile yeah. uh, from start to finish no matter what song of his uh, you're listening to. Absolutely. I do want to encourage our listeners to go to the website, fee, F-E-E dot org. Check out Larry's column, Ambassador Louis Arm- Armstrong broke barriers with music, optimism, and sheer force of his personality. At the bottom, you know, listen to all the clips because they're all terrific, but at the bottom one, it's a, What a Wonderful World. And not only to hear the music, we listen to a, a, little, a few bars of it, but also to see his smile and his expression, he was a happy man. Yes, he was. He was a happy man indeed. Again, Larry, uh, uh, fee.org is the website. Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. 
All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. He is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His two latest are Murder Mysteries, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide two and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in the commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He retired and could uh, set off writing a couple of great murder mysteries. I strongly encourage you to read Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree by Jim McTagg. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's a pleasure. It's a gray day inside the uh, Beltway, and and uh, I'm here, um, you know, I, I I'm I'm reading rereading a news story that broke last week that's disappeared off the uh, front pages about something called Silver Sparrow. It's a mysterious virus that infected thirty thousand um, Macintosh machines, Apple machines, in, including their newest chip. And and it, it's unusual because Apple is supposed to be superior in in uh, protecting users from viruses. Yeah. Uh, nobody knows where it came from. Uh, and nobody knows what it's intended to do because it's dormant. And they're assuming that 30,000, you know, it's sort of like COVID in the beginning. Uh, 30,000 is just the tip of the iceberg. If you can find 30,000, you know, it must be at least double that. So, um, and, and the reason this interests me is because uh, I think our enemies, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, have been waging uh, a war against us for at least two years, probably five years. It's a coordinated attack to bring down our, our infrastructure. Uh-huh. You say coordinated. Uh, to me, it would be a, a somewhat of a stretch to think that North Koreans might be working with Iranians and Russia and, uh, and others uh, to do this. But I think, uh, at, a, at a minimum, I think they're all try- attacking us and trying to get into inside our infrastructure. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I mentioned uh, bef- before we got on the phone, I, I'm a big fan of a, his, a naval historian called Ian Toll. He's American, uh, an American naval historian. 
He's written a, a terrific trilogy about the uh, war in the Pacific against the uh, Japanese. And in his in his uh, in the third book of the trilogy, uh, it, it's, it's called Twilight of the Gods. He has a discussion uh, of our tactics in the Pacific, and and there were uh, uh, most of the generals favored what is called a sequential war, which means we attacked the Japanese island by island in a very methodical way, moving closer to their homeland. Uh, there was another school championing um, a cumulative cumulative strategy, which means uh, we would attack their infrastructure. So, for example, we would torpedo all their transport ships, uh, we would bomb their factories, and so we would uh, eventually strangle their economy to the point where the whole country would topple. Mm. So uh, what I see is, is that I do think there is some coordination. Uh, you know, China and Iran are, are, are in bed together. Uh, Russia works with Iran. So I think it's these cyber attacks are aimed uh, to two two things. They're they're trying to attack and weaken our infrastructure, and secondly, they're they're planting seeds in our uh, digital economy. That you know uh, they have like a a third column that our computer viruses asleep in our computer infrastructure yeah. that they can awaken. Uh, when there's a hot war and bring down our economy. And it's funny you should mention that. Our, my first guest today, Mark Schulman, is the founder and publisher of HistoryCenter.com. One of his stories is about how the Russians actually planted a worm, or call it a whatever it might be, a virus, inside our computer systems throughout the United States government and, and computers, there for, for several months before it actually attacked and started, it started its activity. Uh, and we don't know how how compromised we might be. It may be the entire government secu uh, 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 security system might be at totally at compromised. Yeah, it, it could be even worse. I mean, I I think we should all be paranoid. Uh, back in I think it was 2013. I may miss be misremembering the date, uh, but there was an attack on a substation in Medcalf, California. Uh, by a team of snipers mm -hmm. that took out a major transformer I remember in Southern that. California and yeah. caused a, a massive blackout. And there were all kinds of investigations. All they found were tire tracks and footprints. And that case has never, ever been solved. So, so it seems to indicate that there is a, a, a unit of uh, saboteurs, either foreign or domestic, somewhere in California. Uh, so that's why I say, you know, this this we are at war. It's being, you know, it's a death. The, the strategy of our enemies is let's uh, administer death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. And well, each one of us has to be aware of this because uh, when we do something as uh, cruising the Internet and we push on some mysterious, you know, some enticing uh, uh, Gmail and go to some unknown website, we might inadvertently be furthering the cause of our enemies by downloading some kind of a virus. Yeah. So I, I urge everybody to be as paranoid as I am. Yeah, I, and I am as well. I've actually gone through the cyber hacking business. Uh, I was pretty foolish, actually, to, to be a, a victim to it. But nevertheless, I've learned my lesson. I don't, if I don't click on anything, quite frankly. Even in some cases where I might know the person, I refuse to click on it because yeah, what, what it could lead to is just so harmful. And, and I think you're pointing out that this apparently is, uh, you mentioned Macintoshes, but you're probably also including iMacs and modern-day uh, Apple products. Uh, right. Like I, uh, for my writing, I use a Windows product because I, I like Microsoft Word, but everything else, my phone is Apple, uh, my pad is Apple. I'm dependent on it for a lot of my commerce. So if this becomes infected by a virus, and let's say somebody takes me out of the economy, I mean, uh, you know, I can, uh, I, my purchasing is in complete disarray, my bill paying, right. uh, my whole life suddenly is disrupted because I'm tethered to these devices. And that's that's kind of frightening. We're all tethered to these devices, and are, they're not really that secure. I think we have a false sense of security. Uh, uh, this weekend, I was talking to a computer expert, 
about Texas. He had a client in Texas, a big company, who was its computer system and data systems crashed because of the uh, electric failure. So they went to a backup system. They had a backup system that crashed because of the electric failure. Uh, fortunately, they had a third backup in another state, which never lost electricity. So the company was able to function mm-hmm. as though nothing had happened. But I'm thinking to myself, how many backups do we need? You know, that company had the foresight to have three of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you and me? How many? Maybe we should be keeping paper copies of our uh, bank statements. Yeah. One of my uh, weekly guests is Larry Bell. He's an endowed professor at the University of Houston, prolific author, and has uh, written several books. One of them is about cyber warfare. And one of the takeaways is that, you know, we're basically in a rock fight living in a glass house when it comes to uh, cyber warfare. And, and uh, we are under attack from all kinds of countries right now in so many different ways. Uh, so traditional warfare, I mean, you know, I'm sure it still exists. And we need to be concerned about it. But even greater concern is what's happening in terms of cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the water system attack in Florida was extremely frightening because the attacker was able to manipulate the systems to 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 essentially poison the water. And also our healthcare system, you know, as you get older, you realize it more than the younger people, but healthcare costs are ridiculously high. And so these ransomware attacks are exacerbating uh, that problem as as well. So, I mean, um, uh, we really have to do something as a nation to to batten down the hatches and secure our, you know, if we're going to depend on these cyber networks uh, as a key component of our life, uh, we really have to to protect them, and we're, we're not doing that right now. Right. Well, when we talk about an infrastructure project here in the United States, we're not just talking about highways. We're talking about what you're exactly what you're referring to, which is the grid, the uh, and everything else in order to protect ourselves from cyber attacks because they are proliferating. And it's not, you know. And here's an interesting thing: it, it, it can be an 11 year old kid. It doesn't have to necessarily be uh, the government of uh, Russia. Well, that's that's true. That's why I mentioned foreign and domestic. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, there are a lot of bad guys out there uh, on the web. So, uh, uh, but, need- by the way, I streamed. I uh, used I used technology to listen to, to Trump this weekend. So, uh, wasn't that fantastic? I think he did just a great job, in my opinion. We we actually watched most of CPAC. Uh, over the weekend, and I found it to be, of course, I, I realize you didn't vote for Trump, but and my take on it might be different than yours, but I certainly appreciated it. Was, it was a uh, reassuring uh, message. Uh, yeah, he, he, he had his trademark exaggerations, of course, but I, I, I think he, he can rightfully take credit for Operation Warp Speed. Um, it's phenomenal. I mean, it seems... Like forever, it'll be a year in March since we really uh, had the onset of the uh, virus. Yeah. It seems like more than a year, but if you look at the history of like uh, plagues throughout Europe, uh, these plague cycles lasted anywhere from three to five years, and then they would repeat themselves, uh, you know, maybe five years to a decade later. It was so it was an endless cycle of disease and death, and people evacuating cities like London. So uh, warp speed. It's just, it's like um, pretty much, right, it is out of Star Trek that that a virus could be developed, or or, I'm sorry, a vaccine could be developed that quickly. Jim McTigg, again, author of uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Two great reads, encourage you to get copies. A Great Murder Mystery is located in Washington, D.C. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow, including our state senator, Kathleen Pasadomo. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen. Seton Modley is the founder and president of Less Government. My wife, Linda, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments here on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs>
For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>